With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Previously on Truth and Justice. We don't have the vantage point of having heard his initial interview when he's first brought in. Because they say, we've already talked to you. And there were some things that were developed that we want to explore now. So we don't know what he said initially. And, you know, that's that would be the probably the most important interview. It's definitely uh, discouraging that they are providing so much information to him rather than drawing information from him. That's discouraging from a law enforcement standpoint in an interview. But at the same time, I mean, I, I cannot, I cannot say with absolute certainty that he hadn't prompted some of this information himself earlier. This would be a horrendous interview. But he's the mentality of a child, so I, you can understand why they would have to do so much prompting. But again, that's only if he volunteered some of this stuff initially. Two weeks ago, we invited former FBI and Department of Defense interrogator Tim Clementi on the show to give us his analysis of Jesse Ms. Kelly's confession. Tim wasn't able to really pick a side, so to speak, because he didn't have enough information from the pre-interviews or the case facts. As promised, today we're going to explore the events leading up to Jesse Ms. Kelly's confession. We're going to begin by reviewing the pre-interview notes written by Gitchell and Ridge. After that, we'll break down each case fact that was revealed during Jesse's recorded interviews. We'll assess each point for factual accuracy and identify the source of the information. The end of this episode will be up to you to weigh the evidence and decide for yourself if you believe the confession is valid or if it's a complete fabrication. Jesse's pre-interview interactions with the police began on May 15th. This is when he reported a man later determined to be Tracy Laxton as a suspicious person. Jesse, along with David Sims and Dennis Carter, called police to report a man who had told them that his car had broken down. The man, Tracy Laxton, had asked the boys to come down to his camp in the woods to drink beer. The report states, quote, they got scared because of the recent murders of the white males and that they ran to the phone in front of Howard's Donuts and called the police, end quote. The police file on Laxton says that he was brought into the police department where he voluntarily submitted to give his fingerprints and take a polygraph exam. 
There is no report or indication in the file that he was ever officially cleared of the murders, nor is there any record of a polygraph examination, only his consent to take one. After May 15th, Tracy Laxton is never brought up again. Another somewhat inadvertent interaction with the police occurred when Jesse introduced Vicki Hutchison to Damien Eccles. Vicki had just told Jesse that she wanted to meet Damien, and Jesse obliged. However, I don't think that Jesse knew that Vicki was working with the police at this time. This is another strange behavior that I think needs to be addressed. If, in fact, Jesse had witnessed and participated in the murders along with Damien, in my opinion, it seems very odd that he would introduce him to Vicki and bring him to her house. Jesse was very protective of Vicky and Aaron. In fact, on the night before his arrest, he stayed with Vicky and Aaron to protect them from a prowler. Consider that behavior and how it reconciles with the introduction and the fact that Jesse never mentioned to Vicky that Damien had anything to do with the murders. Next, let's move on to June 3rd, the day that Jesse was brought in for questioning and ultimately confessed to the murders. At 11 a.m., Jesse began his first interview. Detectives Mike Allen and Brian Ridge both took notes on this interview. There was no recording, nor are there any transcripts. These are just the notes that the detectives took during the interview. We'll begin with Detective Allen. Allen writes that Jesse has knowledge of Damien Eccles. He says that Damien is sick and that the last time he had seen him was three weeks prior at Vicki Hutchison's house. The notes say that Jesse had also told Vicki that Damien was sick. He lists Damien's friends as Jason Baldwin and Dominique Tier. Then this next part is interesting. The note reads, quote, Heard about rumors that Damien and Robert Birch did it. End quote. At this point, Jesse is still maintaining that he has no actual knowledge of the murders. Remember what I said in last week's Friday follow-up. A coerced false confession always begins with the truth. Things get sideways when the interviewer refuses to accept your truth and keep pushing you to change your story to one that fits their narrative. So two weeks prior, Jesse calls the police to report a suspicious person camping in the woods near the crime scene. He doesn't claim that he has any actual knowledge of Tracy Laxon being involved in the murders, just that he and the other boys were afraid of him because of the recent murders. A fair and expected reaction from someone with no actual knowledge of the crime. Then, in his interview with police, he maintains that he has no knowledge of the murders, but tells them that he has heard rumors. The rumor that he relays is very interesting and worth exploring. Those that believe Miss Kelly is guilty would say that his implication of Damien and Robert Birch was simply an attempt to throw suspicion off of himself. But let's consider why he tells Detective Allen the rumor is that Damien and Robert committed the murders. If the goal is to simply point suspicion away from himself, then why implicate one of his co-conspirators? This is a dangerous proposition. Pointing the police towards Damien is likely to backfire on Jesse. Had he and Damien actually committed the murders together, it would be a reasonable fear that if Damien is caught, that he would also implicate Jesse. More importantly, why name Robert Birch as Damien's partner in the murders? Either Jesse is trying to move police away from himself, or he is legitimately trying to help. If the latter is true, why would he not name Damien and Jason? If he allegedly witnessed Damien and Jason committing the murders, why only name one of them? I would expect Jesse to either implicate both Damien and Jason if he's trying to help, or neither of them if it's an attempted forensic countermeasure. 
His implication of Damien and Robert Birch here makes the most sense if he's actually being truthful and is simply relaying a rumor that he had heard. Robert Birch was, in fact, interviewed by Detective Allen two weeks prior. Birch was interviewed regarding the possible involvement of the Wren brothers. You may remember our previous discussion on the brothers in our first door-to-door episode. The first line of Detective Allen's notes on Robert Birch's interview reads as follows, quote, I heard the Wrens did it, end quote. There is no indication in the police files that Birch was ever interviewed again after May 15th. Now back to Allen's notes on Jesse's interview. Jesse goes on to say that he was working with Ricky D's roofing on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday on the week of the murders. He says that he got off work at 5 p.m. and went home. Ricky Dees wrote out a statement for the West Memphis PD eight months later in January. In his statement, he says that Jesse was working with him on May the 5th until about 12.30 p.m. He says that he then returned to Jesse's house at 1.30 to have him help clean up the job site, and Jesse's father told him that he had gone to his friend Stephanie Dollar's house. Ricky said that Jesse was a good and hard worker. Jesse continues on in the interview to say that he often sees Damien at the skating rink, that he is usually with Carl Smith and Jason Baldwin. He once saw Jason get his nose busted in a fight, and he says that Damien put his finger in the blood and licked it. He concludes the interview saying that Vicki Hutchison had asked him to introduce her to Damien, and finally, that he had never been to the Robin Hood woods. It's pretty clear that the initial purpose of this interview was for police to get information about Damien from Jesse. Remember that according to Jerry Driver, the West Memphis PD had previously sanctioned Vicki Hutchison to play detective and try to find evidence against Damien. She was unable to do so, other than her story about him taking her to an SBAT, which she later admitted was a complete lie and never actually happened. Since Vicki was unable to get any evidence against Damien, Jason was the West Memphis PD's last hope. And even after naming Robert Birch, the line of questioning comes right back around to Damien and Jason Baldwin. Detective Ridge took his own notes in the same interview. His notes basically mimic Allen's. Ridge does add that Jesse doesn't know anything about the murders, doesn't know much about Robert Birch other than the fact that he lives in West Memphis. Jesse denies being a part of any satanic activity and says that he doesn't know of any actually even taking place. Ridge's notes say that Jesse agrees to take a polygraph examination and that Detective Allen will be attempting to get permission from Jesse's father. Up to this point, Miss Kelly has not provided the detectives with any information about the crime whatsoever. As you heard in a previous episode, during the polygraph, Jesse again denies any knowledge of the crime, and this is where things start to break bad for Miss Kelly. According to expert Warren Holmes, Jesse in fact showed no signs of deception during the polygraph test. Bill Durham, of course, had a different take on the exam. He told Ridge and Gitchell that Jesse had failed and was in fact, quote, lying his ass off. The detectives then brought him back in for now a third interview. Now armed with the leverage that Jesse's brain was telling them that he was lying. Brian Ridge took notes during the post-polygraph interview. This would be where we should be looking for information that Ridge and Gitchell are trying to get Jesse to repeat during his recorded confession. 
As Tim Clementi said, the interview tactics were atrocious unless, in his opinion, Jesse had already provided this information in the pre-interview. Up to this point, Jesse has repeatedly denied any involvement in the murders, he has denied any involvement in satanic cults, the only clue that he has provided to police was a rumor that he had heard about Damien and Robert Birch committing the murders. This is what Ridge wrote in his notes during the unrecorded interview. The notes begin with, quote, permission obtained for polygraph. Bill Durham reported that he is lying. In parentheses, it says, lying his ass off, end quote. Then we hear about the call from Jason Baldwin for the first time. From the notes. Stated he had received a call from Jason Baldwin the night before the murders. They were going to go out and get some boys and hurt them. Note that here Jesse says the call from Jason came the night before the murders. Also note that he's claiming that there was a premeditated plan to kill the boys the next day. Now back to the notes. Jesse stated he received a call from Jason, Damien in background, wanted him to go with them. Said they planned something. Heard Damien say that Jason ought to tell that they were going to get some girls or something. Jesse said he knew what they were going to do. As we move on, next the notes say that Jesse began to say something, but then said that, quote, he doesn't want anything to do with it, end quote. I'll read the rest of the notes directly from the report, but before I begin, try to remember back to Aaron and Vicki Hutchison's statements prior to this interview. And remember that Jesse spent the night before this at Vicki's house. Notice the similarities with the story that Vicki now says never actually happened. From the notes. Jesse stated he saw pictures of boys killed during meeting. Has meeting of satanic cult. Will meet in different places. Will talk of what they are going to do. Will build fire of paper and wooden stuff. A friend of Jason's will bring a briefcase. 15-year-old Ken wears a long coat. Briefcase has a couple of guns. Lives near where Billy Stewart used to live. Someone brings a dog and they usually kill the dogs. They will skin the dog and eat part of it says that Damien drives a red car that's owned by Jack Eccles. In the briefcase are a couple of guns and some drugs, marijuana, and cocaine. States that picture a boys in a group of three in front of a house. Damien has been to West Memphis watching. Has watched boys in the woods where they were killed. States that Damien hangs out at a skating rink to find boys. Doesn't know who has briefcase now. Says Damien has been watching boys for a long time. Meetings all held on Wednesday. On Wednesday, the boys were killed. There was no meeting. Friends who attend meetings. Christina Jones, Jesse, Dennis Carter, Jason, Damien, Adam, Ken, New Dude, Tiffany Allen, Dominie, Christina Jones, blonde hair, tall, heavy set. Will be eight or nine people, and they will have an orgy afterwards, three on one. Jason and Damien are having sex with each other. Has had meetings in Robin Hood. Jason has a folding knife. Damien doesn't have one. Jason always carries knife. Jesse not sure of times of phone calls. Three calls. Day before. Morning of murder. After dark, Jason online. Damien in background. We did it. We did it. What are we going to do now? What if someone saw us? Sounds like Jason was at home. Brothers in background. Says that the animal killing is part of ritual. If person eats meat, then he's part of group. We'll take polygraph concerning new statement. Shown a picture of one victim in coroner's office. Jesse knows that was one of those killed by Damien. Jesse looked hard at picture and said it was of the Moore boy and that it was one of the boys in the Polaroid. 
Jesse stated that he didn't want to be a part of this, that Damien and Jason killed, he did not. We'll think about taking a polygraph test. I left room at which time Jesse informed Gary Gitchell of his being present during time of murders. Witness murder by Damien and Jason. Tape statement began after time given to get self-composed. Contained in the case file on the Callahan website is a document called Interview Timeline. The time log was created by Detective Ridge after these interviews. According to the log, Jesse began answering questions at the police station at 10 a.m. He was read his rights at 11 a.m. At 11.15 a.m., Detective Allen took Jesse to meet his father to obtain permission to perform the polygraph examination. At 11.30 a.m., Jesse was read his rights again by Bill Durham before performing the polygraph. Polygraph was completed at 12.11 p.m. At 12.30, Durham advised Ridge and Gitchell that Jesse had failed the polygraph. At 12.40, Ridge and Gitchell began to interview Jesse again. This is the interview that the notes we just discussed came from. Ridge and Gitchell interrogated Jesse for one hour and 40 minutes before he first claimed to have any actual knowledge of the murders. At this point, Jesse has maintained for four hours and 40 minutes through three interviews and a polygraph test that he has no knowledge of the crime. The only useful information that he provided detectives was that he had heard a rumor about Damien and Robert Birch committing the murders. The log says that at 2.20 p.m., quote, Jesse states to Inspector Gitchell that he was present when the three boys were killed. Preparations were begun to tape the rest of the interrogation when it was determined that Jesse was a direct witness or participant of the homicide. End quote. According to the interview notes in this time log, Jesse has not provided any details of the crime or crime scene prior to the tape being turned on at 2.44 p.m. The only detail provided to Jesse during the pre-interviews was, quote, Jesse informed Gary Gitchell of his being present during the time of the murders, witness murder by Damien and Jason, end quote. So now that we have the answer to Tim's question about whether or not the detectives were simply trying to get Jesse to repeat something that he had already stated, after a short break, we're going to unpack all of the crime and crime scene details that were revealed in the recorded interviews, as well as the sources of those details. Two weeks ago, you heard the 46 minutes of Jesse Kelly's interviews that were recorded on June 3, 1993. After reviewing all of the pre-interview notes, it is now apparent that Jesse did not provide the detectives with any crime scene details before the tape was turned on. Since this was the qualifier for Tim Clementi to excuse the leading and suggestive questioning of Detectives Ridge and Gitchell, I am now even more certain that Jesse's entire narrative came from the detectives rather than Jesse's own memories. Taking a second look at Jesse Miss Kelly's confession has been far more productive than I had originally thought that it would be. What we're about to do next is to sort through all of the cult meetings, dog eating, and orgy talk, and focus in on the elements of the crime that were actually revealed during the interviews. And there are far less than you might think. One thing that I did learn through this exercise is that the few details of the crime that Jesse did come up with are number one, based on theories rather than provable facts, and also that this information can be sourced. What we learned by studying the pre-interview notes is that prior to the recordings, 
Jesse was shown a picture of Michael Moore on the autopsy table. From the autopsy report, we know that this is what Jesse would have seen in that photo. Cuts on the right front scalp and left forehead and bruising on his face, namely his left cheek. Remember that as we review the information that he provided during the interview, that Jesse saw a photo of one of the boys with cuts on his face and bruises on his face. Also, let's not forget that Jesse spent the night before he went to the police station with Vicki and Aaron Hutchison. Now let's move on to all of the details of the crime scene that were revealed during Jesse's so-called confession. Let's begin with the time of the murders. Here's the first exchange where time is mentioned. Ridge, when did you go with them? Jesse, that morning. Ridge, 9 o'clock in the morning? Jesse, yes I did. Here, Jesse was asked an open-ended question without suggestion. When did you go with them? And Jesse's guess, 9 a.m. Ridge returned to the time issue a few minutes later. From the transcript. Ridge. All right, you went home, and about what time was it that all this took place? Jesse, about, Ridge interrupts. I'm not saying when they called you. I'm saying what time is it that you were actually there in the park? Jesse, about 12. Ridge, about noon? Jesse, yes. Ridge, okay, was it after school let out? Jesse, I didn't go to school. Ridge, these little boys, Jesse, they skipped school. Ridge, they skipped school? Jesse, they were going to catch their bus and stuff, and they were on their bikes, and so Ridge interrupts him again. All right, they were on their bikes. Where were the bikes at? Here again, Ridge makes clear that Jesse's previous response wasn't the one that he was looking for. He tries another open-ended question, and this time Jesse comes up with noon. But the detectives aren't done. Jesse's still far off from the mark, and a couple minutes later, Gitchell steps in and gives it a try. Now, did you say that the boys skipped school that day? These little boys did? Jesse, yes, they were going to catch, they were going somewhere, and like I said, Damien and them left before I did. I told them I would meet them there and stuff, and it was early in the morning, so they went ahead and met me. They went up there, and I come up later behind them. Gitchell, what time did you get there? Jesse, I got there about 9. Gitchell, in the morning? Jesse, yes. Well, that didn't work. Now we've gone to noon, back to 9 a.m. You can tell that Jesse's getting that they want a different answer, but clearly he isn't sure what they're fishing for. Next, Ridge tags in and tries to give Jesse a clue. At this point, he has said that the crime happened at 9 a.m., noon, and then back to 9 a.m. No mention of afternoon, evening, night, getting dark, nothing. It's either 9 a.m. or noon. Now, what is supposed to be happening in this so-called confession is that the detectives are supposed to be listening to Jesse tell them what happened, not the other way around. But after Jesse bounces from 9 a.m. to noon and back to 9, Ridge comes back with this, quote, Okay, the night you were in the woods, uh, had you all been in the water? End quote. Do you get the feeling that Ridge believes that Jesse is truly recounting his own memories here? In complete disregard for the time he gives in response to the open-ended questions, Ridge inserts his own knowledge of the case here rather than listening to what Jesse is saying. Jesse says morning or noon, Ridge says night. (laughs) 
So how does one fix this problem? You've asked your suspect now three times to tell you when the murders occurred, and all three answers are impossible. Well, the solution is pretty easy. Jesse had demonstrated repeatedly throughout this process that he will say whatever the detectives want him to. They just have to tell him exactly what to say. After this first interview, the tape gets shut off for 27 minutes. Gitchell talks to Jesse then off the record. Problem solved. During the non-recorded conversation, Jesse remembers that instead of the very bright morning and noontime, it was actually getting dark when he went into the woods. From the transcript. Gitchell. Jesse, uh, when you got with the boys and with Jason Baldwin, when you three were in the woods and the little boys come up, about what time was it when the boys came up to the woods? Jesse. I would say it was about five or five or six. Gitchell. Now, did you have your watch on at the time? Jesse. Uh-uh. Gitchell. You didn't have your watch on. Uh-uh. Gitchell. Uh, all right, you told me earlier around seven or eight. Which time is it? Jesse. It was seven or eight. Gitchell. Are you? Jesse. It was starting to get dark. Gitchell. Okay. Jesse. I remember it was starting to get dark. Gitchell. Okay, well, that clears it up. So, Jesse eventually gets the time right after two attempts to tell the detectives that he was in the woods at 9 a.m. and one attempt to tell them it happened at noon and an off-the-record conversation with Gitchell. I guess here we can score one for the detectives. Jesse, on his fourth attempt, does get the time right. Next, let's look into how Jesse describes the crime scene. He was there, after all. He should know what it looks like. From the transcript. Ridge. Okay, you've been down in those woods before. Now, notice here, Ridge tells Jesse that he's been in the woods before, not the other way around. Can you describe to me what in those woods, what's the location where you were? Jesse's response. Uh. Ridge jumps back in for the assist. Is there a path you go down? Jesse, uh, down a little path. So we now know that there is a path in the woods. But who provided that information? Jesse? Nope. Ridge introduces the path, not Jesse. So now let's talk about the creek where the boys were found. Up to this point, Jesse's made no mention of the creek or any water at all. Ridge introduces the creek here. Quote, all right, when you get back, the boys back together, where were you all from the creek? Jesse, I was up there by the service road. Now that Ridge has informed Jesse that there is in fact a creek, Gitchell asks if that's where the crime occurred. And as Jesse did 173 times during this short interview, he answers yes. From the transcript. Gitchell, was, uh, were you all close to the creek at that point? Jesse, yes, sir. Where was the little boy actually at? Jesse, he was close. Then here, Ridge jumps in and introduces the bayou. Ridge, all right, now you know where the bayou is. Jesse, right. Ridge now explains what the crime scene looks like in detail for Jesse. Ridge, all right, and you know where the little creek is that goes out to the expressway, and it doesn't have a lot of water in it, but it's got some water in it, and it's flowing through the which side of that creek were you on? Are you on the Memphis side of the creek or the Blue Beacon side of the creek? Jesse, Blue Beacon. Ridge, on the Blue Beacon? Jesse, yes. 
And then here comes a little more detail from Ridge, not Jesse. Ridge is about to not only tell him that there is a tall bank, but also tell Jesse that he was in fact standing on it. From the transcript, Ridge, so there's like a tall bank. Where were you at on that bank? Jesse, I was up there standing up there on the top. All right, where were they at? Jesse, they were at the bottom. Ridge, on which side? Jesse, the Memphis side. This is another detail that I missed before. Jesse had told Ridge and Gitchell that Michael Moore ran away. He caught him, brought him back to Damien and Jason, and then left. He's made zero mention of any water. Ridge and Gitchell did that. And definitely no mention of anyone actually being in the creek. Yet here he says he was on the opposite side of the creek from Damien and Jason when he brought Michael back to them. But don't let a little detail like that trip you up, Ridge. Carry on. While we're on the topic of Michael Moore running away, let's examine how that information came about. Did it come from Jesse? Well, let's see. From the transcript. Ridge says, When he hits the first boy, and then Jason hits another boy, and one takes off running, where does he run to? Jesse had not previously said anything about any of the boys running away. Ridge just introduced that detail. Jesse responds, That one, he runs out, out of the park, and I chased him and grabbed him and brought him back. Ridge, which way does he go? I mean, does he go back towards where the houses are? He's going to the Blue Beacon. Is he going towards the fields? Where's he running to? Jesse, towards the houses. Then here, Gitchell jumps in and introduces the pipe bridge to the scene. Jesse also hasn't said a word about that up to this point. Gitchell, where the pipe is that goes across the yards? Jesse, yes, he ran out there and I caught him and brought him back and I took off. So the first issue is, as I mentioned, that Jesse supposedly brought Michael back to Damien and Jason and then left but they're on opposite sides of the creek, and Jesse never says that he goes down the bank that Ridge told him that he was standing on. Secondly, I've seen people state that this part of the story is corroborated by the fact that Michael Moore was found 27 feet away from Chris and Stevie. Therefore, it makes sense that he would have run away and be brought back. But the problem is that Michael Moore was found 27 feet away from the other boys in the wrong direction. Jesse says that he ran toward the houses but Michael's body was found away from the other two boys towards the highway in the opposite direction. Now, not all of the details that were revealed in the interview came from Ridge and Gitchell. Jesse did contribute a couple of items without getting any prompting. The first came at the very beginning of the interview when the detectives were still doing their jobs properly. Ridge begins by asking Jesse an open-ended question. From the transcript, Ridge, okay, what occurred while you were there? Jesse, when I was there, I saw Damien hit this one boy real bad. Then uh, he started screwing them and stuff. And there you have it. Jesse says that he saw only Damien hit one boy. And how many pictures of the victims had Jesse seen before this? One of one boy. Michael Moore, who had cuts and bruises on his face. The only unique detail provided by Jesse here was that Damien was, quote, screwing them and stuff. This is obviously a problem because there was zero evidence that any of the boys had been sodomized. It's a glaring factual error, 
and the only crime scene detail provided by Jesse without prompts, suggestion, or being shown a photograph. And he got it wrong. We get a solid 60 seconds into this interview before Ridge bails on the open-ended questions. He interrupts Jesse while he's trying to piece together a narrative, and from this point forward, we'll hear 211 yes or no questions. Jesse does add a little more detail further into the recording when he makes it crystal clear what he supposedly saw Damien doing. Quote, Damien was screwing one of them up the ass. End quote. And again, that didn't actually happen. Later in the interview, Ridge asks Jesse what Damien hit the boys with. Jesse responds that he, quote, hit him with his fists and bruised him all up real bad, end quote. Later, the detectives convince Jesse into adding a stick to the equation, another detail provided by them and not Jesse. And in this line, we again hear Jesse say that Damien, quote, bruised him all up real bad. You know when you don't see bruises? Right after you hit someone. It takes time for a bruise to appear. But you know when you can see bruises? In a photo of the victim on an autopsy table. Remember the point that Jason Baldwin made last week. False confessions usually begin with the truth. But the officers refuse to accept your truth and keep pushing you until you give them what they want. Jesse maintained for hours that he had no knowledge of the murders and even passed a polygraph to that effect, according to Holmes. Ridge and Gitchell refused to accept his truth and kept pushing until Jesse gave them what they wanted. Here's just another example. Ridge, okay, the one that they were cutting the penis off of. Did any of them cutting the penis or whatever was being done, did they have sex with them at all? Jesse, no. Ridge, did either one of them? Jesse, Jason did. Jesse gives an answer. Ridge doesn't like it, so we ask the same question again. By this point, Jesse has learned the game. When they repeat the question, they want a new answer. And I suppose you really can't blame him here. It was a 50-50 shot. He just guessed wrong the first time. Did anyone have sex with them? Nope. Did anyone have sex with them? Jason did. Just in case you've lost track, remember our goal here is to find actual crime scene details that came out during this interview and to identify the sources of that information. So far, the best we have is Ridge and Gitchell doing a pretty good job of describing the crime scene and Jesse being completely wrong about everything else. So here's another great example of a crime scene detail provided by Jesse. The cause of death. From the transcript. Ridge, did you see any of the boys actually killed? Jesse, yes. Ridge, okay, which one did you see killed? Jesse, that one right there. Gitchell, now you're pointing to the buyer's boy again. Jesse, yes. Ridge, how was he actually killed? Jesse, he choked him real bad and all. Ridge, choking him? Okay, what was he choking him with? Jesse, his hands, like a stick. He had a big old stick, kind of holding it over his neck. Ridge, okay, so he was choking him to the point where he actually went unconscious, so at that point, you felt like he was dead. Jesse, yeah. 
Given that there is zero evidence that any of the boys were choked at all, either with a hand or a stick, this is just further evidence that Jesse Miss Kelly was not present during the commission of these murders, which was exactly what he told the detectives for several hours. But sadly, they wouldn't accept the truth and instead insisted on a different story. Now let's move on to the boys' bindings. It's been said that Jesse knew that the boys were tied up, but where did that information actually come from? You guessed it, Brian Ridge. Here's the first mention of the boys being tied up in the interview. Ridge, okay, when you came back a little bit later, now are all three boys are tied? Jesse, yes. Ridge, is that right? Jesse, yes, and I took off and run home. Did Jesse actually provide detectives with this information? Let's look at Jesse's exact words during that back and forth. Yes, yes, and I took off and run home. A little bit later, Ridge prods for more. Ridge, and then they tied them. Jesse, then they tied them up. Their hands up. They started screwing them and stuff. Again here, Jesse tries to expand on Ridge's statement about the boys being tied up, and he gets it wrong. According to Jesse, only the boy's hands were tied. Ridge tries to correct this the next time he brings up the bindings from the transcript. Ridge. Okay, he had his legs up in the air, all right. What was to keep the little boys from running off? But just their hands are tied. So what's to keep them from running off? Jesse. They beat them up so bad they can't hardly move. They had their hands tied down, and he sit on them. Ridge. You said that they had their hands tied up, tied down were the hands tied in a fashion that they couldn't have run you tell me jesse they could run they just had them tied when they knocked them down and stuff they could move their arms and stuff and hold them down like wake up and raise up the other one just put his legs up ridge okay so they had them under control you were there the whole time this was taking place jesse i was there Ridge was obviously trying to get Jesse to say that the boy's feet were also bound, but he's not taking the hint. In fact, Jesse makes the problem worse by saying one of the boys, quote, just put his legs up, which the victims would not have been able to do if they were bound in the way they were actually found. In the follow-up clarification interview, Gitchell takes a gamble in hopes that Jesse can at least get the material the boys were bound with correct. But no dice. From the transcript. Gitchell. All right, who tied the boys up? Jesse. Uh, Damien. Then, of course, that's not good enough for Gitchell, so he has him change his answer. Gitchell. Did Damien just tie them all up, or did anyone help Damien? Jesse. Jason helped him. Gitchell. Okay, and what did they use to tie them up? Jesse, a rope. Gitchell, okay, what color was the rope? Jesse, brown. Wrong again, and Gitchell steers clear of any more questions about the bindings. And now for the big one. Jesse Miss Kelly knew that Chris Byers had been castrated. Or did he? Now remember before you hear this next part, that Jesse had seen the photo of Michael Moore on the autopsy table with cuts on his face. 
Here's the conversation about Chris's castration from the transcript. Ridge. Jason had a knife. What did he cut with the knife? What did you see him cut, or who did you see him cut? Now, Ridge makes the statement that Jason had a knife, and then narrows down the question to who Jesse saw him cut. So Jesse at least knows he's supposed to say that one of the boys was cut. Back to the transcript. Jesse. I saw him cut one of the little boys. Ridge. All right, where did he cut him at? Jesse. He was cutting him in the face. Up to this point, Jesse is answering the questions consistent with the photo that he had seen of Michael. One boy with cuts on his face. He is confident in speaking in complete sentences. If we separate out Jesse's words during that exchange, it sounds like this. I saw him cut one of the little boys. He was cutting him in the face. Then Ridge tells Jesse that another boy was cut. From the transcript. Ridge. Cutting him in the face. All right. Another boy was cut, I understand. Where was he cut at? Jesse, at the bottom. Ridge, on his bottom? Was he face down and he was cutting on him? Or, Jesse, he was. Gitchell interrupts. Now you're talking about bottom. Do you mean right here? Now, obviously, Gary Gitchell is gesturing to his groin at this point. Do you mean right here only makes sense with a gesture. Jesse's response? Yes. Gitchell, confirming? In his groin area, Jesse, yes. Gitchell, okay. Ridge, do you know what his penis is? Jesse, yeah, that's where he was cut at. So in this exchange, Ridge told Jesse that a second boy was cut, Gitchell points to his groin, and Ridge hands him the word penis. These were Jesse's words during the exchange where he supposedly demonstrated knowledge of Chris Byers being castrated. At the bottom, he was, yes, yes, yeah, that's where he was cut at. Jesse did not demonstrate any knowledge of what happened to Christopher Byers. Brian Ridge and Gary Gitchell did. All Jesse ever did was agree with them. Next, let's move on to the revelation that Jesse knew that the boys were held by the ears while being forced to perform oral sex. Now, to begin with, we need to point out that there's absolutely no proof that this even did happen. There were bruises on the boys' ears, that's true. The idea that those injuries were caused due to forced oral sex is nothing more than a police theory that cannot be proven or disproven. It's just a theory. That being said, let's see how Jesse revealed that information. Gitchell. How did they force the boys to have oral sex on them? How did they have a hold of them? So Gitchell tells him that they're holding them in some way. Jesse, one of them had holding them by the arms while the other one got behind them and stuff. Gitchell, who had had some success with the gestures during the penis conversation, uses the same tactic here. Gitchell, did he even hold him up here or... Jesse... Uh, the one that was holding him up there at the front, grabbing him by his headlock. So that's Jesse's second attempt now. First the arms, second headlock. Gitchell, for the second time, doesn't accept his answer and says, had him in a headlock? Did he have him in any other way? Jesse, he was holding him like this by his head, like this and stuff. There's Jesse's third try, still not quite good enough. 
Gitchell goes back to the gesture well. Could he have been holding him up here like that? Jesse, here comes his fourth attempt. I was too far away. He was holding him up here by his head like this. As we move down further, Gitchell. And they would hold, tell me again about their hands on. I mean, I know you're you're holding it up here. Jesse, it was up here by their heads and stuff and was just pulling and stuff. There's Jesse's fifth try. Gitchell. All right, so they are up here, had their hands, so he's gesturing again. Jesse, now on the sixth attempt, by the ears and pulling them and stuff. Gitchell, all right, okay, say say that again for me now. Jesse, hold them by their head, by ears and pulling. Gitchell, okay, and this is where the tape stopped. Just like that, that's all there is to it, that's all there is to it. A winner, just like that, we'll be right back with our price is right, don't go away. So Jesse does end this exchange by saying, quote, hold them by their heads, by ears, and pulling. He nailed it. But let's back up to see how we got there. Where did this information actually come from? Jesse's first attempt, holding them by the arms. Gitchell doesn't accept this, gestures to his head. Jesse makes now a second attempt at the right answer, saying he had him in a headlock. Gitchell again doesn't accept this and asks if they were holding them in any other way. Jesse makes his third attempt now and gestures to his own head, like this, by the head, like this and stuff. But that's still not good enough. Gitchell demonstrates again for him. Could he have been holding him up here like that? At this point, Jesse gives up and says, I was too far away, but then tries again with another gesture of his own, holding him up here by his head like this. Gitchell is still not satisfied. Tell me again about their hands. And here comes another Gitchell demonstration. This would be number three. You're holding it up here. Then Jesse takes a fifth stab at the answer Gitchell's fishing for, up here by the head and stuff, and was just pulling and stuff. We're still not there, but we're getting closer. Gitchell then demonstrates with his own hands for now the fourth time, this time drawing Jesse's focus to his hands. So you're up here, had their hands, and Yahtzee. Jesse's got it now. On a sixth and final attempt, Jesse now says, by their ears and pulling them and stuff. Which was a really long trip from his first statement, they were holding them by the arms. By the end of that disgusting game of charades, Jesse finally did confirm Gitchell's theory on why the boy's ears would be bruised. But just like every other element of the crime and the crime scene brought out in this interview, information did not come from Jesse. Gitchell physically gestured and showed Jesse what he wanted him to say. Now, the last thing I want to discuss today before we put this to bed is the one thing that did give Tim Clemente pause, and that's Jesse's vivid memory of throwing up. Let's go to the transcript and see if that information indeed came from Jesse himself. Ridge, You say that you got sick, so that's what you were saying. Did you throw up or anything? Jesse, yes. Ridge, where did you throw up at? Jesse, I got a little bit of ways out there and got a half mile up the road is when I threw up and couldn't hardly run and I just threw up. So who brought up Jesse throwing up? Was it Jesse? Nope. Brian Ridge tells Jesse that he got sick. Jesse never said that. Then he asked Jesse if he threw up, 
And just like he did 172 other times, Jesse simply said yes. And when Ridge asked him where he threw up, Jesse doesn't say that he was horrified by what he had seen and it caused him to vomit. He says, quote, I got a little bit ways out of there and got a half mile up the road is when I threw up. I couldn't hardly run and I just threw up, end quote. He couldn't hardly run and just threw up. Ridge told Jesse was sick, asked if he threw up, Jesse answers yes, and does not provide any emotional or sensory memory at all. I quote, couldn't hardly run, and just threw up. I brought Tim Clementi on the show to give us an unbiased analysis of Jesse's confession, and he did exactly that. Rather than making any assumptions, Tim provided us with a direction to look deeper in order to find our answers. Based on Tim's analysis, the only thing that would excuse Ridge and Gitchell's leading and suggestive questioning of Jesse would have been if he had already provided the details of the crime in his previous interviews. According to their own notes, Jesse had done no such thing. After hours of denying any knowledge or involvement in the murders, the minute that he had changed his story and said that he was a direct witness, They stopped the interview and turned on the tape recorder. I'm really extremely grateful to Tim for forcing me to take a closer look at Jesse's interviews. I now feel stronger than ever that Miss Kelly has absolutely no knowledge of these murders. He was a victim of two overzealous detectives who were never looking for the truth. They bullied a kid who didn't have the stamina or capacity to resist their insistence that he tell their version of the truth rather than his own. Throughout both of Jesse's recorded interviews, as well as his unrecorded interviews and polygraph tests, he did not provide the detectives with one single accurate detail of the crime scene, the time of the murders, or the crime itself. Not one. Zero. After dissecting the transcripts, we find that Ridge and Gitchell provided the layout and details of the crime scene, the theory that one of the boys had been cut in the groin or penis area, the fact that the boys were tied up at some point, and an insertion of the theory that the boys were held by their ears during forced oral sex. And that's it. That's all of the information that came out of this interview that at least fits with Peretti's opinion of the injuries and the police theories. We never hear about the shoelaces being removed from the shoes, the wrists and ankles being bound, the drowning, the removal of the clothes, the concealing of the bodies, what the boys were wearing, nothing. These items weren't just omitted from Jesse's narrative, they were omitted from the interview altogether. These were facts that could have been independently corroborated. So why didn't Ridge and Gitchell ask Jesse what the boys were wearing? A Cub Scout uniform is pretty hard to forget. Why didn't they ask Jesse or even allow him to elaborate on the details of how the crime was committed? They didn't ask these questions because they were never looking for the truth to begin with. Jesse told the truth hours before and they refused to accept it. And after unpacking these notes, reports, and transcripts line by line, I'm thoroughly disgusted with the lack of ethics of Ridge and Gitchell and the inexcusable tactics they used to destroy the life of a young man who they knew had no actual knowledge of these murders.
Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com designed and created our Season 5 logo. A special thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month, we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.